So I got the uh, call to, to, uh, to uh, fly out and, and come and meet with some of the faculty and staff. And, and so um, when you're flying from the West Coast, um, you know, from San Diego, you have to take the red eye. I mean, it's, you, that's the best flight because you don't know, just sleep and you wake up and it's 6 a.m. and you drive to Marion and you have your meetings. And so uh, um, I was pretty excited, you know, and we got here in the morning, drove up. And uh, I walked into Nago Ministry Building, and the first person that I saw was Wilbur Williams. And, uh, and all of a sudden, I was overcome with fear. <laughs> and he saw me, he's like, Charlie, it's good to see you. And, and it's like, I knew I was, you know, having this conversation about, you know, leaving that church out there and coming to IWU. And, and it's like, and all of a sudden, conviction came all over me. You know, and, and all of a sudden it's like, Wilbur, it's good to see you, sir. And in the back of my mind, it's like, confess, confess. It's like, Charlie, what burdens your heart? You know, it's like, Wilbur, I cheated an Old Testament test. Oh, Charlie, surely your sins shall be forgiven. Now go and sin no more. You know, and, and it's like, oh. You know, what I thought about was having, like, somebody tie, like, you know, a rope around my foot when I went into his office in case I were to die in his presence. They would just pull me out, you know, and so it's like I felt so good. It's like I've been carrying that for 20 years, John. I mean, 20 years at guilt because it's like I got, like, a C minus in Old Testament, and it's like it was so difficult. I just failed that King's test, like, over and over. And so, like, for my final project, I made, like, the Ark out of the, Co- of the Covenant out of, like, toothpicks, and it was awesome. It's like I just spent all night making this thing to pass that class. But when I went to confess to Wilbur, I remember him saying this. I thought, I'm out of his office. I'm free now because he sent me away. And he goes, Charlie, come back in here. And so I walk back in. I think, okay, we're going to be friends now if I'm going to work here. And, and now, instead of him being my professor, we're peers. He throws me these keys on second thought, go wash my car, and your sin shall be forgiven. I was like, oh, no, he didn't. <laughs> but it was one of those crazy things because about a year and a half later, a dream comes true. There's going to be a picture up on the screen. Basically, I get to go to Israel with Wilbur Williams. All right, and this is amazing. And I ended up going on multiple trips with Wilbur. All right, and dude, who doesn't love Wilbur? How awesome is Wilbur Williams? Amen. Uh, dude, if you don't have his class, you just go sit and listen. Go sit at the door. All right? And it's like all of a sudden, it's like the Shekinah glory of the Lord will be all over you as he's speaking. As Joshua not knowing what Jehu had done. And it's like, Lord, I don't know what he's just said, but I feel convicted. It's so good. <laughs> just feels right. Back in my day, Wilbur would come out to Macon every Christmas and read was the night before Christmas and all through the house. And it was so good. Bros, if you can't get a date, at least if he does that, shoot for that date. All right? Shoot for Macon when Wilbur's reading this Christmas story, and it's awesome. But um, we go to this place, and I'm in Israel with Wilbur, and it's amazing. And we're seeing things I've only read about and heard people talk about. But then there's this one specific spot that blows my... Oh, time out for a second. Somebody, I just got this buzz. The Fusion Committee wants you all to know that we just booked Reliant K um, for the spring to go retro for Fusion. 
So just FYI, not too bad. All right, now I can turn my phone off. I go to this very spot that I've remembered reading about and thinking about and seeing pictures, and this is actually a picture we took, and it wasn't really like anything I really remember. It was just, it's like, um, like wow, I, I just expected it to be a little bit different. And we get in this spot, and we gather around, and we have about you know, a half an hour just to be by ourselves. And what's so crazy about this is I was so stinking lucky um, to do my grad work at a place that had an incredible synoptics professor, just like we have here at IWU. So I'm out at Azusa Pacific in, in L.A. area, and Dr. Kenneth Waters is this brilliant man. And, and it's like this always messed me up because I'd hear these great preachers talk about certain nuances of portions of Scripture, that, and it made it come to life, and there's so much more there. If you could deep, deep dig and, and exegete the passage and get down into it and expose and all the words that would come with it. And so I focused on this because something had to be happening there that I wasn't seeing. Because every picture I have of feeding the 5,000 is little kids with a fish and loaves of bread and passing it out and this massive miracle. So I'm kind of going through this with Dr. Waters, asking questions and deeper. And he led me on a journey that blew my mind and opened the door to something that I never even understood before that I want to share with you. I'm at the location. I go back. I begin to read the text. And I find this in Matthew 14. And I want to do with uh, you what Dr. Kenneth Waters did with me. He read this text and said, look at it. Just think about it. Chapter 14, verse 13. When Jesus had heard the news, he's talking about John the Baptist, he slipped away on a boat and got away by himself with some of his disciples. Um, but people saw him. Some saw him and they went around the other side. And from nearby villages, they walked around to the lake where he was. And when he saw them, when he saw them, he had come passion on them. His heart was moved. He was overcome with pity and he healed the sick. And all of a sudden, that's a part of the story that I simply ignored. That in the midst of all this craziness about miracle after miracle and, and the big and the amazing, what's at the heart of Jesus? He's surrounded by a group of people that are devastated by the news of John the Baptist being killed. I mean, there's so much going on within culture that's driving them crazy, and fear abounds everywhere, not just within the group of people that we know as disciples and all those other people that gather around, but people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. When you go to this little spot, there's a little town called Capernaum on the north tip of the Sea of Galilee here, and it's not that big a town. It's way smaller than Marion. You think, put it in context, it's, it's not Indy, which is a pretty decent-sized town. It's not a huge town like L.A., which is way bigger than Indy. It's a small, little, tiny burb. And maybe four, five, seven, eight hundred people maybe reside there at this time. Some people would argue that. Who knows? It's small. And it's saying that over 5,000 people plus others, so we're talking 16, 17, 18,000 people are gathering in the middle of nowhere. Why are they doing that? 
They want to see something. They want questions answered. There's fear. There's stuff that's taking place, and they think that this person has the answer. They want to know. They want to discover. And so they gather around, and you know the story. You know the story. They gather around, and Jesus sees them, and he's filled with compassion, and he sees the need, and he wants to address it. And then if you keep reading the text, it gets later in the evening, and the disciples say to Jesus, send them away so they can get food, so they can eat. Notice, so they can take care of it. When actually, you know, I think they were saying, so I can take a break, so I can get some rest, so I can get something to eat, so I can have some time to myself. And Jesus says, no, you feed them. You take care of them. And so we know the story when we were little kids that they went around and they got the loaves and they've got the fish and they bring them back to Jesus and Jesus does the miraculous. Well, Dr. Waters would say, Charlie, think about this for a second. How many people are there? Well, you know, it says 5,000, but really we think, you know, 14, 17, whatever. That's a ton of people, all right? So think about this. Who are they? Where are they from? How do they move? How do they work? What's their culture? How do you think that that many people would invade that area that's out in the middle of no place with no water and with no food and no provisions? When they're nomadic by their very nature, they're used to traveling, that doesn't make any sense. In fact, I liken it to like us. I come to you, it's like, hey, I got some kids coming to IWU this weekend. I need some meal swipes. Can you go find me some? And then you come back to me, it's like, I, you know, there's only seven total meal swipes available on campus this weekend. Bro, there's like, you probably have 500 in just this row of meal swipes available this weekend. I mean, their meal swipes abound. And I come back to you and say, you could only find seven meal swipes out of all of us? Let's calculate it right now. How many, how many people have at least 30 meal swipes left the rest of the semester? How many people have 40 meal swipes the rest of the semester? How many people have 50 meal swipes the rest of the semester? How many people have a lot of meal swipes? Everyone raise your hand. All right. So many. How many always have leftover meal swipes that you never use? You know it's true. If you didn't raise your hand, I think you're lying. That's good. That was a joke. I wasn't pointing you out. I was just being silly. JK, hashtag funny. <laughs> Dr. Waters would say to me, do you think they really wanted to feed these people? Do you think they really cared about what was happening? Do you think they were connected to Jesus and what he's trying to do? Or do you think they were becoming selfish or fearful or just plain arrogant or tired or the combination of them all? Why did they only come back with that little scrap of food when there were 14 or 18,000 people? And what did Jesus do? I understand that he did some amazing stuff all at the same time. But one thing he did is he taught the disciples a dear lesson. He taught them a dear lesson. The feeding of the 5,000 was just as much about teaching those who knew him and trusted him, I think, and followed him as it was about all those people who were just trying to discover something about him. And where does that leave you and me? this brilliant group of people. That's what you are. 
I was in Atlanta this couple, last couple days and talking about how amazing you are, and it's true. I was talking to John backstage right before the you know, chapel. It's like, what a privilege it is to stand before you and, and communicate about God's word. You are what make IW so amazing. You're why I'm here. You're why we're all here, because we care and love you and believe in you. But we are that class of people who've known, we've heard, we've accepted, and now we're in that season of life where we're growing deeper, not only as disciples, but leaders. And what is expected of you is so much greater than what was expected of you when you were in middle school. You know the truth. You've heard the truth. I mean, can you just stand back here one day during chapel and listen to your voices as you worship? You're amazing people. But I'm telling you right now, when I'm working through this with my professor way back when, I felt convicted that if I was a disciple, I've probably been one of those people that's like, man, we got to take a break, Jesus. It's like, you're supernatural, bro, of course, but I'm just normal. And it's like, I'm hungry. Let's take a break. And Jesus sees through all of it. I think they were afraid. I think they were a little bit arrogant and selfish. Why? And he gave me assignment, go back and dig deep. Examine your life, Charlie. And what do you find? I want to read you these notes. They're pretty old. I mean, 14-year-old notes right here from what happened in my life as I began to dig deep. I figured this out. You can't fill a cup that thinks it's already full. You can't fill a cup that thinks it's already full. I mean, look it. It's true. I'm not making this up. You are very sharp. You are an amazing group of people. There's no question about that. But how could you already be full? I'm a lot older than you, and I realize that I need so much more. Can't fill a cup that thinks, not that is, but thinks it's already full. Look, friends, want more. Know, know that there's so much more. Another principle that came out of this was this. Pride reads scripture and it sees how other people can change. Pride hears the song and sees how other people should follow. Humility reads scripture and says, what about me? Very convicting. This was not a cool exercise, by the way. And I was glad I was by myself. I was glad I was by myself. Because there's a lot of tears that are starting to roll down now. It's like pride. Pride reads scripture. It's like, what should you do about it? In fact, there was this image that came through that's like pride would say, hey, this is what you need to do. And this is where you need to go. And that's what you should be a part of. And points to direction. Where humility, a person who spent time with Christ says, this is where he is, therefore this is where I'm going and I invite you to join me. Wherever he is, I'm going and I hope you're a part of it. It doesn't wait. It doesn't just kind of assume that you're going to do it. Humility chases where he's at. And by chasing him, others might follow. This one blew my mind. A great way of hiding from your failure, Charlie, is to seek perfectionism. It's a way to avoid 
vulnerability. It's away from avoiding being wrong. Just seek perfectionism. Ignore your failures, ignore your faults, seek something higher. And all of a sudden, this is what comes out of that. You make yourself, your life so busy that you numb yourself and hide from the reality of failure and mistakes that you've made. This is me. Vulnerability for you, all right? It's the first thing that I want to see in somebody else. And it's the last thing that I want to reveal in myself. I don't think that the disciples truly understood that they were standing right next to Jesus. Just think about that for a second. All the fear, all the issues, all the problems that surrounded them as people is starting to come to the surface when they're in the midst of amazing, crazy, and intense situations. And what boils out are these things. Lack of humility, fear, this drive for perfectionism, I mean, think about it. Holy buckets, that's us. I mean, that's us. We seek perfection to such a degree that it's like we can avoid being honest about ourselves. Seeking accountability. Real accountability. I am so thinking blessed that I have dear friends here that I go to on a regular basis that are my accountability buddies or accountability buddies. I know that's not a cool word for you guys, all right? But they're my accountability buddy, all right? It's a name that we made up at Ground Zero in San Diego for, in our middle school small groups. Do you have accountability buddy? And it was really cute then. It is still cute now. But it's true. It's true. It is so true. And then this comes because you can't be vulnerable outside a relationship with others. You can talk about vulnerability and you can talk about accountability and you can talk about it and talk about it and write about it and write about it and talk about it, but you can't have it outside of a deep relationship with somebody else or a group of people. And you know what it is? Talking about vulnerability, talking about spirituality outside of relationships with other people is nothing more than simple isolation. And that's what we can find in the midst of 3,000 people. You can find isolation in chapel if you choose. Because there's some fear about becoming vulnerable. There's some fear about becoming accountable. Then there's this big note, remember, God won't bless what you're unwilling to do. God will not bless the thing that you're unwilling to do. I want to be faithful. I want to be worship-oriented. I want to be used by you. Unless I'm one unwilling to walk by faith to that degree, to that location, how would he bless it? And then the classic scripture, obedience is greater than sacrifice. And there's where the conviction starts to roll down. Because I grew up in a time where I could sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. And that would be like my little buttons on my little shirt that I got from CYC, which some of you know about and a bunch of you don't. 
but the Christian, young Christian crusaders. And we'd get these little jackets where we got buttons for sacrificing and doing things, kind of like the Christian Boy Scouts. Does anybody even know what I'm talking about? Dude, there was things back in the day like that. There's things called like flannel graph that were really amazing. There was, there was tape decks and CDs. And dude, you guys missed a great time of life. There's so many great things, but man, we got buttons for sacrificing. And in fact, the goal was to, the more you could sacrifice, the more godly you could be. But that's not in scripture. What he says is to obey is what I desire from you. To obey is what I want from you. I don't like that because to obey means he's in control and I'm not. I don't like the obedience thing. I, I, I found a church where we can sacrifice, 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 and give the appearance of being godly when actually I'm not. Very convicting. I, I, this was really difficult, and so I started thinking around, why am I so afraid? What am I afraid of? And I figured out, you know what fear is? It's a combination of two things clinically. Two things clinically, the imminent and the potent. That's what makes up fear, the imminent. It's going to happen potent, it can hurt me. The imminent and potent are make, what make up fear. See, there's real fear and there's false fear. For example, it's like you can be watching something on TV and all of a sudden a snake comes out and it's like, oh, that scares me. It's not real. It can't hurt you. It's only on the TV. It has the idea, the look, it might, quote unquote, conjure some feelings of fear inside of you, but it's not potent. What I began to recognize is I have both kinds of fear. I fear the things that are out there that can't touch me, but even worse, I fear the things that are imminent. I see them in my life, in my family, and other things, and it could be devastating. And then I go back to this biblical story. Who are they standing next to? The disciples are in a situation that's crazy. There's fear. They see one of their own beheaded. They're over here now ministering to these massive people, and they're standing right next to Jesus. They're walking right next to Jesus. They're eating food right next to Jesus. They're in proximity with Jesus. I mean, if we can work this out, it's like we're going to walk through a season of our lives, whatever that is, wherever it takes you, whatever your fear may be, and what we'll do is how about we maybe connect with Jesus? What happens if we find him and bring him to where we're at? What happens if we can spend time with him? What happens if he was right next to us? Jesus was standing right there, the singular most powerful being in the history of the planet earth god himself was standing right there the only one who can overcome fear the only one who's more powerful than imminent is god himself and he was standing right next to them and why didn't they trust him why wouldn't they run to him if he tells you to go get some food go get some food If he tells you to go on that trip, go on that trip. If he tells you to talk to that person, talk to that person. If he says sacrifice this, sacrifice it. 
If B says, I want you to give that, and you say, well, I only have two of those in my wallet, give the two and borrow two more from somebody else. Because he is God. He is the most powerful. He is the most potent. And that group of people had him standing right there. Jesus schooled the disciples that day as much as he cared about the lost. How beautiful a picture. How amazing what we get to see. And then I ask you this question. What about you? I mean, where is Jesus here? Where is Jesus here right now? Do we have to call him up? Do we have to convince him to be a chapel speaker? Where is he at? He's right here. Um, I'll be honest. This is exactly what I did. I went home, and I know this is going to be a little retro. All right, this might be your middle school days. But I went home and made it really simple. And stop trying to be so clever and try, stop trying to be so brilliant and write um, more down than I could manage, you know, and try to, try to come up with some words that were so elegant. And I just went really simple. And I'm just wondering if you can go really simple right now for one minute. In one minute, could you go really simple? Maybe close your eyes, bow your head, and just recognize that he's sitting, standing, right next to you. So I just went back home, I sat down by my piano, and I played the simplest song, the most innocent song, to get my head straight. 